Shabbat Shalom from Under the Dome. My name is Noel Joshua Hadley. This is the Unexpected Cosmology. Thank you, everyone, for being here tonight. This is called Mud Fossils. And I know everybody here has seen pictures of mud fossils. Probably everyone listening to this later on has, I mean, I, I'm not, I would be surprised if I introduced this to anybody for the first time. However, there, there's a couple things happening here. One is that I am revisiting a lot of this stuff to implement it into future editions of Millennial Kingdom plus Mud Flood. But I am also, I believe, introducing some new things in this paper that uh, there are going to be people in this room, if not everybody in this room, who has never heard this before. And I think you guys will be pleasantly surprised. As I was saying before we started, I don't, because I'm a writer, and I like to read, I put way more focus on ancient texts. Um, I know that they can, they alter texts. I get it. They alter anything. They can alter pictures. I get really excited if I can read something in an ancient text that will give credence to the things we are talking about now. And I found a few of them. So let's get right to it. This is called Mud Fossils by Noel Joshua Hadley, originally published on October 9th. 2022. So rather recently, I was plugging away at this all week. If you guys were following on the front page of Cosmology, every day I was updating with some new information on this. This is uh, the first section is called on page three, the War of the Titans and the African Dragon. Oh, I will also warn everybody that this is a Rivka error, er, error, a Rivka era paper in which I was rushing at a frantic pace to get this written. And um, <laughs> we'll see what uh, kind of uh, spelling errors we find in here for this presentation. Because, you know, when I literally have a baby on my lap, um, you know, typing with one hand and, and I'm kicking, her, I'm like, you know, shaking here with my other leg as I'm typing. And for all you parents out there or former parents, you'll know what I'm talking about, where I find myself just, out in public or wherever and i'm like shaking my leg and i'm like i look down i'm like i don't even have a baby i'm just shaking my leg because i'm so used to it but here we go hold on i need a swig of coffee uh coffee before we get going my original intent was to include my mud fossil research as part of my genesis reset investigation it's the idea that genesis 1 1 was in actuality a recreation event rather than the first go-around. I should have said Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 1-2, but you guys know what I'm talking about. But then evidence involving a dragon of the fire-breathing variety came along, and I figured the topic of mud fossils might be better served as a spin-off. Some of you may be wondering what a mud fossil is. You've come to the right place, I think. The theory holds that rock formations and mountains resembling creatures of a larger-than-life scale may in fact have been living creatures at one time. And we're talking behemoth creatures, many of which could destroy an entire city with a few stomps of its foot, or its paw, or its claw, or whatever. Some even larger still. The thing about mud fossils is that they don't simply tell us about one epoch of his story. Young Earth creationists will attempt to explain that Fossils and all other abnormalities in the geological record derive from one single event, namely Noah's flood. But I've seen too much and read too much on my own to fall into that position again. What mud fossils actually manage to do is give us a glance into several different potential epochs. 
some well beyond the 7,000-year timeline in Scripture. The War of the Titans went down before the creation of the modern world, according to source material. Many claim the Watcher's incursion in Enoch is describing the same events. That may be. I don't really know as I wasn't there. If you recall, the Watchers were forced to watch their giant children kill each other off in combat. Sounds similar, as the War of the Titans goes. Then again, it may very well be a repeated event. Either way, the slaughter of giants was an instance in his story which happened centuries before Noah's flood. Those mud fossils can be found, I believe. The point to all of this is that you can't explain away every abnormality in the geological record with Noah's flood. There's, you know, probably dozens of reset events. And this is what we read in Enoch chapter 10. To Mikael, that would be Michael, the archangel, likewise, Yahuwah said, go and announce his crime to Samjaza, or Shimiaza, and to the others who are with him, who have been associated with women, that they might be polluted with all their impurity. And when all their sons shall be slain, when they shall see the perdition of their beloved, bind them for 70 generations under the earth, even to the day of judgments and of consummation until the judgment, the effect of which will last forever be completed. Enoch 10.15. It took some page flipping, but I found the passage in Enoch where the sons of the watchers would be killed off. It says they were to be slain, but that is all we're told. Did they slay each other then, or did Elohim do it? Greek mythology has Zeus, along with his brothers and sisters, finally defeating the Titans after 10 long years of fierce battles. The Titans were then hurled down by Zeus and imprisoned within the bowels of Tartarus. And uh, I, I, depending on the story you read, I believe it was actually his, uh, his thunderbolts, really, his lightning that uh, ultimately did it, which I find interesting. I could offer you sources on that, but they are easily found on your own. Particularly interesting is Kepha's, that would be Peter, Kepha's insistence that this area of mythology is true. They really were cast into Tartarus. This is what he says, For if Elohim spared not the angels to sin, but cast them down to Sheol, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be watched unto the judgment of anguish. That comes from Kepha Shini, or Second Peter 2.4. The Sefer, which I read from, says Sheol, but but are in error for doing so. Most biblical translations retrofit the word to fit their doctrine and state hell, another wilder misstep as the pendulum swings. The Berean uh, version, as well as the Holman and the literal standard version, claims Tartarus, though, which is what the Greek states. Its actual word is, uh, in English, Tartarosus. Look at it for self if you don't believe me. It doesn't say Colossi, the Greek variation on Sheol which is where people get hell. No, it says Tartarus. There is a point to everything I am stating, and the writer of Second Kepha happens to agree with the, Greek, uh, the Greek's Titan narrative, at least as Enoch details the story. I decided to give Yovhelim, that's uh, Jubilees, a luxilu, to see if it also complements the Enoch story. It does. To my surprise, though, we are given slightly more detail. And this is what we read. And again, uh, and against the angels whom he had sent upon the earth, he was exceedingly wroth, and he gave commandment to root them out of all their dominion. And he bade us to bind them in the depths of the earth, 
and behold, they are bound in the midst of them and are kept separate. And against their sons went forth a command from before his face that they should be smitten with the sword and be removed from under heaven. And he said, My Ruach shall not always abide on man, for they also are flesh, and their days shall be 120 years. And he sent his sword into their midst, that each should slay his neighbor. And they began to slay each other till they all fell by the sword and were destroyed from the earth. And their fathers were witnesses of their destruction. And after this, they were bound in the depths of the earth forever, until the day of the great condemnation, when judgment is executed on all those who have corrupted their ways and their works before Yahuwah, Jubilees 5, 6 through 10. The command is given from Yahuwah's civil oath in heaven that the children of the watchers were to, to fall by the sword rather than flood water. Uh, in that instance, Noah's flood. It is the most high Elohim who sent a sword into their midst. But then it was the Titans who went about killing each other. Again, this all serves a purpose. I will be showing you a great deal many mud fossils. Many of them appear to have succumbed to a violent death, but certainly not all of them. When we arrive to the sleeping giants, it is very possible that they died of mortal wounds, but not immediately, meaning they, they were mortally wounded, but they were able to like kind of lie down and, and uh, succumb to their death peaceably and you know became the mountains eventually. Still, other smaller mud fossils look as though they were simply living their lives, humdrumming along, and then zap, were turned into stone. Then again, the swords of heaven would give any sparkler a run for its money. It's why it's really very difficult placing everything we're witnessing into one category or time frame. There were many different resets in the mud fossil records, which brings me back to the Genesis reset and the dragon of North Africa. And for those of you, we weren't recording it, but I think two weeks ago, I talked about this discovery I had. So for those of you who were here for it, just entertain me. We'll go through it again. Can you see it? The fire-breathing dragon, which I had mentioned in passing. It's there. Look closely. Or perhaps the problem is that you are squinting your eyes, hoping to nab the brutes in the smaller details. No, you've got to think bigger. Larger than life, even. That is Africa you're staring at, by the way. Do you see the Strait of Gibraltar? It's the patch of earth nearly connecting Morocco to Spain in the north, as well as separating the Atlantic Ocean from the Mediterranean Sea. The green strip running alongside the coast, starting in Morocco, but then continuing through Algeria and onto Tunisia, isn't it. You'll need to journey west of Casablanca, about a thousand miles to the western Sahara, to discover its head the dark spot. Find its head and you should easily be capable of following the arch of its neck to a body. There is a wing branching off towards Marrakesh. Marrakesh. Two sets of legs stem towards, uh, I guess it's Timamoon, Timamoon, in the south. Its tail streams out towards Tunis Tunisia. Big boy. And then the next image here on page seven, I'm pulling this image from Google Earth, just so you know. Feel free to try it on your own. Any of you can go to Google Earth and look this up. It, you'll see it immediately. It's not hard to find. Finding the dragon should be as easy as placing your finger upon Northern Africa. Zoom in and the mouth could be seen in greater detail, looking very Pac-Man-like. Its jaws are locked in a wide open embrace. I spy an eye. Some have claimed that's a fish he's eating, but I disagree. He didn't die while eating fish. No, that's either blood or some sort of toxic venom gushing forth from its throat. 
telling us of a violent death. You can even see the runoff of decay alongside its neck and the entire length of its body. Of all the mud fossils to feature, you may be wondering why I went with a, a continent-sized dragon first. It was to make a point. What we're looking at is far too large even for the giants of Enoch's era. A single breath would have blown the three piggies' house down in Florida. A dragon of this size would have served one purpose only, and it was a destruction event. I can come to no other conclusion except that it predates the Genesis creation events. And just so we're clear, I've been sitting on this geological feature now for several years, not really knowing what to make of it. The best thing to do in these situations is to set it on the shelf until another piece of evidence comes along. Well, I believe I have found what I was looking for. It is a somewhat lengthy passage, but do follow along anyhow. I wouldn't have included it had I not thought it was worth your time. And this is what we read. Uh, you'll see which book I'm quoting from when we get to the end. It is known, and the story comes down from ancient times, that there was not one creation, but two, a creation and a recreation. It is a fact known to the wise that the earth was utterly destroyed once and then reborn on a second wheel of creation. That's a very interesting phrase there, the wheel of creation. You'll see more of that as we read on. I will mention, well, I'll go ahead and say this comes from an Egyptian text that very, very closely resembles the Bible. I mean, it's shocking how close this resembles it. Um, and if you read the legend of the Jews, in the very beginning, they actually come to the conclusion that we are in the seventh creation, that there were six prior to us, which I find really, really fascinating as well. Um, there is some good theology or doctrine to be found in that right there. There are actually six worlds that preceded ours, and that the Genesis 1 and 2 account is actually the seventh creation. At the time of the great destruction of Earth, Elohim caused a dragon from out of heaven to come and encompass her about. So where is this dragon coming from? It's actually coming out of heaven. Anytime you encounter a dragon you are or a serpentine creature, you are probably always looking at a seraphim angel. And remember, there, as I've pointed out in the past, not all dragons are bad. There are good dragons and there are bad dragons, good seraphim, bad seraphim. This one is very Leviathan-like in that, you know, Yahuwah says he created the Leviathan as sport just to kill it, that's what we're going to see here. And I don't comment on the Leviathan. That's why I bring it up now. I've commented on it a lot in the past. It, it sounds very much like a Leviathan. The dragon was frightful to behold. It lashed its tail. It breathed out fire and hot coals. And a great catastrophe was inflicted upon mankind. The body of the dragon was wreathed in a cold, bright light. And beneath, on the belly, was a ruddy-hued glow, while behind it trailed a flowing tail of smoke. It spewed out cinders and hot stones, and its breath was foul and stenchful, poisoning the nostrils of men. Its passage caused great thunderings and lightnings to rend the thick, darkened sky, all heaven and earth being made hot. The seas were loosed from their cradles and rose up, pouring across the land. So right there you see there's a flood happening. The, the flood is destroying the earth. There was an awful shrilling trumpeting, which outpoured even the howling of the unleashed winds. Men stricken with terror went mad at the awful sight in the heavens. They were loosed from their senses and dashed about, crazed, not knowing what they did. The breath was sucked from their bodies and they were burnt with a strange ash. 
Then it passed, leaving Earth enwrapped within a dark and glowering mantle, which was rudely lit up the side. The bowels of the earth were torn open in great writhing upheavals, and a howling whirlwind rent the mountains apart. The wrath of the sky monster was loosed in the heavens. It lashed about in flaming fury, roaring like a thousand thunders. It poured down fiery destruction amid a, a welter of thick black blood. So awesome was the fearfully accepted thing that the memory mercifully departed from man. His thoughts were smothered under a cloud of forgetfulness. I will comment here really quickly that um, I, I, I originally announced I was going to be talking about the, um, the Hyperborea Flood. It, it's, it's, it's a title that I came up with. You've never heard of the Hyperborea Flood before, but I decided to save that presentation for next week because this one took a life of its own. But uh, in my Genesis Reset paper, I talk about a, uh, a reset event that Enoch talks about. And uh, we're basically like the whole earth is like dumped into this abyss and it, um, you know, the abyss is there in Genesis chapter one, looking very strange. I think this is the same event that Enoch talked about. The earth vomited forth great gusts of foul breath from awful mouths opening up in the midst of the land. The evil breath bit at the throat before it drove men mad and killed them. Those who did not die in this manner were smothered under a cloud of red dust and ashes or were swallowed by the yawning mouths of earth or crushed beneath crashing rocks. The sky, uh, the first sky monster was joined by another, which swallowed the tail of the one going before, but the two could not be seen at once. Hmm. The sky monsters reigned and raged above the earth, doing battle to possess it, but the many-bladed sword of Elohim cut them in pieces what does that sound like? Just like the Leviathan. He, you know, he created the Leviathan just to do sport with it and kill it. So he, uh, the many-bladed sword of Elohim cut them in pieces, and their falling bodies enlarged the land and the sea. Take a, take a note of that. Anything I put in red there. In this manner, the first earth was destroyed by calamity descending from out of the skies. The vaults of heaven had opened to bring forth monsters more fearsome than any that ever haunted the uneasy dreams of men. How epic is this? Men and their dwelling places were gone. Only sky boulders and red earth remained where once they were. But amidst all the desolation, a few survived, for man is not easily destroyed. That sounds like, like something an elf would say, like in the, in the uh, prologue to The Lord of the Rings. Man is, for man is not easily destroyed. They crept out from caves and came down from the mountainsides. Their eyes were wild and their lips trembled. Their bodies shook. Uh, if anybody could turn off that microphone, that'd be great. Their eyes were wild and their lips trembled, their bodies shook and their tongues lacked control. Their, vase, their faces were twisted and the skin hung loose on their bones. That sounds like, <laughs> talk about going through an ordeal. Like the skin is hanging loose from your bones. Like that has, that sounds like terror. They were as maddened wild beasts driven into an enclosed enclosure before flames. They knew no law. But being deprived of all the wisdom they once had, and those who had guided them were gone. The earth, only true altar of Elohim, had offered up a sacrifice of life and sorrow to atone for the sins of mankind. Man had not sinned indeed, but in the things he had failed to do. Man suffers not only for what he does, but for what he fails to do. He is not chastised for making mistakes 
but for failing to rec- recognize and rectify them. That last paragraph is so good. And the I, I wish I had developed this further. I, I unfortunately didn't have time this week, but where it talks about this is the earth, the only true altar of Elohim had offered up its sacrifice and, and so on and so forth. I, I, I wanted to talk about that more from a biblical perspective and from the mud fossil perspective and how we are literally walking on, you know, what used to be living organisms everywhere. And, um, but I'll let you guys uh, think about that a little bit more on your own. Maybe next week with the Hyperborea flood, I'll be able to go into that more. As you can obviously tell by now, the dragon story cannot be found anywhere in your Bible. Doesn't make it untrue, though. I've probably said this in other places, but sometimes repetitions are necessary. The book of creation, which we just read from, is included in a collection of books that has been dubbed the Colburn Bible. These stories parallel the Genesis account as well as the gospel. And they they talk about Yahusha throughout their uh, later portions. The section you have just read is thought to be as ancient as the exodus of Yasharel from Mitzrayim, and in fact derives from the very country of Egypt. That is to say, it is Egyptian in origin. And I, you know, the the origins of this book really are m- mysterious, and people really do think it, it came right around the Exodus time. I suspect that the writers of this book were in the same lineage of the priesthood as as Jethro. Uh, he was a priest, and we don't really know a whole lot about him, um, but he seemed to follow the same uh, Elohim. And um, this this book is is I, I'm not saying that it is I don't believe it's it's Holy Spirit breathed. Um, I think that it it details a lot of lost history, and it is phenomenal in how these priests writing this book talk about how there is one true Creator Elohim. And that uh, he hasn't been revealed to man, which is interesting because he revealed himself to Moses uh, and Abraham. Uh, but uh, that, you know, he abhors idols and, you know, all these lower gods that people worship. It's just a fascinating read. I'll leave you to do your own digging on Colburn because there is so much going on here. No, we see that the dragon incident coincides with the complete destruction of the old world, as well as the Genesis recreation event to follow. It furthermore explains the origin of the Ouroboros, if you were paying attention to that, if you could visually picture what was going on. And need I remind you that the Ouroboros is Egyptian. Yes, Plato talked about it, but he just stole it from Egypt. Probably the, um, the, um, the, the Druids as well, I would imagine. He, he just you know stole their material. There were two dragons. One was biting the other's tail. They were presumably flying around the circle of the earth like that and were so large that nobody was capable of observing both entities at once. That's pretty big. We then see that Elohim cut them in pieces so that their falling bodies enlarged the land and the sea. Are you not amped? I wouldn't be in the least bit surprised, nor would I blame you if you set down this reed to perform a cartwheel or two across the living room rug. The mud fossil of North Africa seems to solidify this particular event in the book of creation and vice versa. It's humorous beyond words how people think science has a better handle on his story than the inhabitants of the ancient world. All right, moving on page 11. And uh, you, you guys are probably familiar with, with just about all these pictures. If this is the first time seeing this, that's pretty awesome as well. But you guys should be able to tell the the similarities in all these photos and these two pages 
All right, page 13 is the Motsko Elephants. And I will quickly say before going into this that I think it's been three years ago. Yeah, three years ago, I interviewed the individual who basically discovered this elephant. Um, by discover, I, I mean to say that it's in his backyard. From his like, kitchen window, he can look out in Spain and see this gigantic elephant mountain, which we'll be going over. And he started doing tests on it. He explored. He spent years exploring the caves and the, he hiked every bit of it he could and taking samples. And he started making videos back in 2019 and uh, on his findings. I interviewed him over the phone. Great discussion. Very nice guy. And he was kind of like, just like, he's like, hey, just look at my research, just write on it, you know, just, just, you know, make, make an article of your own on it. And, uh, it's been on my stack of things to do for three years now that tells you when people give me like stuff, they want me to research. I'm like, okay, throw it on the stack. So this was, you know, three years ago. Perchance you turned the page, not having the faintest clue what you were staring at. They were elephants. I kind of thought the shapes were self-explanatory, but apparently not. Don't be too hard on yourself. Go back and take a second glance if you don't believe me. I provided nearly a dozen photos, and in every single one of them, they were larger than life, very much like the oliphants who J.R.R. Tolkien wrote about. You will tell me clouds used to make puffy animal shapes at one time, before the chemtrailing, and that mountains have the perfect right to take on the same happy silhouettes. Perhaps you are correct, and some really are only rocks. The far more suspicious matter is their standing position, if we're being honest. Look, I would never wish for the drowning of an elephant. But should I be witness to the affair, I'd imagine the elephant wouldn't die and then become fossilized while poised on all fours for the camera. Noah's flood didn't do that. If it had, then we would surely uh, observe them in, in an asphyxiated position after being swept off with the tide, maybe even bashed against the rocks and then whisked into a whirlpool with other bloating corpses. Corpses, And that's why we find so many fossils in these graveyards, because they were kind of all brought there together. No, something turned them to stone where they stood in a split second. And so you may or may not be happy to know I've happened upon material which tells us this was the case. It was instantaneous. And this comes from, oh, the same, the Colbin Bible, but this one comes from the Book of Gleanings. And it says, I was really excited when I read this. In olden times, there were spawned great monsters and beasts in fearful form with frightful gnashing teeth and long ripping claws. An elephant was but a rat in comparison with them. Then because of heavenly rebellion and turmoil, and this is speaking about the watchers, and the terror overwhelming the hearts of men, the Great One, that would be the Creator, hardened the face of the land, which had become unstable, and the beasts were changed to stone. Hmm. This was before times when the destroyer still slumbered in the upper vaults of heaven. At the threat of leading the witness, I included a couple of Medusa illustrations above the text, edits as well as on this page. Too much? But only because everyone loves a picture book, and also because she would otherwise be the elephant in the room had I not. Had I not, it says the great one had something to do with their being turned to stone, a reference to Elohim. You and I both know, however, that spiritual beings are employed for his purposes. And Medusa has all the markings of a seraphim angel, being a serpentine reptilian type creature. The destroyer, by the way, is probably a reference to Nibiru, another spiritual entity. 
it, it talks about the the destroyer coming into sights of men and then big reset events happen. So you cannot say Planet X is the cause of the mud fossils in case that is what you were thinking. And anyways, it sounds an awful lot like the War of the Titans is being described. It fits perfectly with Enoch's timeline too, like a glove, as a great deluge is detailed in the following chapter of this book. Otherwise, we read about great monsters and beasts being turned to stone and nothing of elephant titans. The phrasing is interesting nonetheless, as an elephant is mentioned. Would it be safe to say that an elephant was but a rat in comparison with the elephants of old? Surely there are monster mountains to be found in other places. We shall have to find those. But then we are on the subject of elephant mountains at the moment, and you should know that I was holding out, wanting to save the best for last. You'll have to turn the page to see what I'm talking about. Some 1,300 miles northeast of the Marrakesh dragon, as the bird flies, is Motgo Mastiff in Spain. It's an elephant, in case you were wondering, perhaps even a mammoth. And in fact, I'm inclined to think so due to the size of the crown of its skull. Difficult to make out from this angle, no doubt. The evidence, however, has me convinced it was an elephant so large that all I had to do was roll over to take out the townsfolk. Here is Mako from another angle. Take a good, long, hard look at it. The elephant aspect is unmistakable. The tip of its skull rises above its shoulders, and though it is difficult to tell from this direction, there is a cutout right where you would expect the neck to be. Making out its eye and trunk is the easy part. The eye socket is a cave, and its trunk has formed a plateau which extends itself southward higher than the town. From an aerial view, it looks like an elephant too, much more so. Unlike all the other elephant mud fossils, this one is lying down. Not only that, but it was also already dead before becoming turned to stone. The decay is apparent. I will show you. First, you should be able to see the cutout on both sides, the neck portion where the head meets its shoulders. From there, following its spine should be the easy part. To the left of the spine is a great deal of erosion. And in fact, those who have studied the mountain will concur, saying this section particularly is loose and jagged. And in fact, the, the head portion on the left as well. Below the eroded region, the ribs are accounted for. So even though it's eroded up there in that slope, you can see the ribs below that, which is really interesting. That's exactly what you would like to see of like a bloated creature, you know, maybe after being dead for a week or something. I have already shown a side view of the elephant's head. From this aerial angle, I will admit it doesn't look much like an elephant's. That probably has something to do with a major collapse. The runoff is especially apparent. In fact, the decay is noticeably worse along the entire length of the elephant's left side, as I've already mentioned, probably because it's facing the ocean, thereby becoming weather-worn to the elements. Come to think of it, the front of the elephant's skull would be the most susceptible to collapse, especially given the enormity of its size. That big, gaping cyclops-like hole in its skull is the breathing attachment for its trunk. A cavern that large would very likely buckle under the weight. I tried finding a demonstration of what elephant bones might look like while lying down, but with no luck. So I have one standing up. It shouldn't be too difficult, however, to imagine one and then match it up with Montco. The skull would be ever so, ever more so elevated above the shoulders as uh, we see of the mountain. The front legs might be tucked under its ribs, while the back legs uh, would trail behind. And we also, as we also see, we see the, the 
the legs behind it showing behind. I'll show a picture of that later. And the rounder stomach would flatten out. So this is back on the right side of the head right here at the bottom of page 17. I spy an ear attachment. That would be the crescent moon shape towards the back of its head, that that uh, the pink area. It looks like a, like a, yeah, it looks like a crescent moon, but it's kind of both ends are pointing up and it's near the neck. I am told it includes a cave uh, right there in the ear attachment as well, which you would, it would be the ear canal. The right side of its skull could scarcely be more perfect as preservation goes. Its eye socket should be easy to find. Just to the right of that is another small hole. This is what is so important here. So it's not just a coincidental cave where the eye would go. Uh, the, the smaller hole right in front of it, which it perfectly matches up with the in, infraorbital foramen found on an elephant. Humans have those too. The infraorbital foramen is one of two small holes positioned on either side of the skull's upper jawbone, both of which are used for blood vessels and nerves. And that's exactly where it's positioned on an elephant. On closer inspection, the temporal fossa, which is a shallow depression on the temporal region of the skull, directly behind the eye socket is accounted for as well. The only thing missing is the zygomatic arch. And I wish I would have shown a picture of that, but the zygomatic arch is like a, it's an, a, a, a bony extension on the skull uh, that kind of pops out on both sides. Uh, and you may need to look carefully at the elephant skull again. So it, it's kind of there. You can see it if you look on the side view. Oh, you know, actually on both views, it's that, that bony ridge that pops out. Um, the, the zygomatic arch is the protruding ridge line directly below the, below the temporal fossa, which is missing from the mountain, most likely because it broke off. And it would, it would buckle under the weight. But then look below the eye socket and the infraorbital at the uh, and the infraorbital foramen. Another abnormality can be found precisely where the tusk would have protruded from its skull. That's that you can see it looks like a like a backward Z there. Uh, that's that where the, the opening for the tusk would come right out. Unless I forget the elephant's hind legs. Its left leg is especially long, twice the length as its right. Not sure what happened to the other one. Perhaps it too succumbed uh, to decay and collapse. Bottom of page 19. Another fascinating detail doesn't even involve the actual mountain. To the southeast of this behemoth, we can find a reddish hue wherever the earth is exposed. I'm thinking that's blood. The elephant was poached. Now, I didn't want to show for this actual pictures of poached elephants. Uh, it'd be a little depressing. I love elephants. They're my favorite animals on Earth. Uh, but if you can imagine a poached elephant, uh, even a dead elephant, but like a poached elephant, you will see like they will, their head will be kind of forward, their trunk out, and just like this. And you could see like where the blood would just run off right there towards the ocean. All right, page 20, we're moving on. This is called Sleeping Giants, Faces of Stone. You know, it's my, one of my favorite places ever on Earth, Yosemite Valley. The story comes down to us in the Yosemite Valley regarding the long-ago arrival of Nangus and his woman, Tissaak. I always want to say Tissaak, but Tissaak. Only then it was known as Awani. Uh, Yosemite back then was known as Awani. Fun fact, Yosemite probably means um, white killer, named after the, the settlers who were coming in. Immediately after the weary day of travel, the woman sat down her cone-shaped basket, 
which she carried upon her head and began lapping up the water of the mirrored lake. They call it today Mirror Lake. And you can actually see Half Dome's reflection and it's, it's quite beautiful. She drank so deeply that when her husband arrived, the lake was dry. Nangus was so enraged by her carelessness that he raised his walking stick to strike at her. Tissaak cried as he ran uh, as she ran from him, tears streaming down her cheeks. She turned and threw her basket at him. It was at this it was at that precise moment when they faced the other, however, that the great spirits transformed them both to stone. Today they stand opposite one another. The tear-stained face of Tissaak is burned into Half Dome. Her husband, as well as the cone-shaped basket, are named Washington Column and Basket Dome. Fairy tales, you tell me, as a woman couldn't possibly lap up a lake in one sitting. A normal-sized woman, no. Have you seen the woman's portrait, though? That's no ordinary-sized woman. One single tear might flood out the campsite. And then there's her basket. Perfect-sized noggin for something like that. By the way, uh, pareidolia is the condition describing someone who might have the tendency to interpret vague shapes and morph them into something that they're not. I probably should have brought this up earlier, maybe even as the introductory sentence. For everything is spiritually meaningless, you see, unless post-Newtonian scientists tell us otherwise in the MSM, seeing as how the historians know more about the people whom they, they're writing about than the actual people did of themselves. You figure the Miwok Indians must have all suffered from the condition, pareidolia. They probably have pharmaceuticals to help treat that now. Oh, the ancients were superstitious, dark-faced barbarians, I'm sure. Couldn't tell the difference between a spirit and a flickering campfire shadow. Thank God for the public schools to set us straight. I went on a little rant there. You'll have to accept my apologies. And then we see this picture of this beautiful island at presumably sunset. Yeah, this would be sunset. No, actually, uh, this might be sunrise. Doesn't really matter. Uh, let's see if I can pronounce this right. Inish, Inish Tuskirt. Inish Tuskirt is an island off the coast of Western Ireland. Legend tells of a giant who fell asleep in the sea. The catch being that he slept so long that eventually people forgot about him and claimed his face to be an island. The giant is expected to wake, by the way. Alternatively, the island is also given the ancient title Anfir Marb, which translates to the dead man. Either way, dead or asleep, it seems to me those Irish locals believe the island to be one of them missing titans. If that's a dead man, that's an awfully big dead man, I'll tell you. And then we see here, page 22, the sleeping giant legend can be found all over the world. Another one is sponsored by the Ute Indians of Colorado. If you have done your research, then you will know there were wicked giants to be found all over the Americas. But Steamboat Springs was said to be home to a gentle giant, a friendly giant eager to protect the people of the Yampa Valley from harm. Well, apparently at some point, the giant was promised eternal life so long as he never harmed another living thing. And by the way, a similar promise was given in the Book of Giants, so long as the giants repented of their wicked ways. So that's kind of interesting. Seems as though the giant of Steamboat Springs repented of his ways. The only hiccup to his new way of living involved a wicked ogre who had come to the valley to terrorize everyone. The short of it is that the giant lured the ogre to his death so as to save the villagers, the people. 
but ultimately broke his oath in doing so, and the giant succumbed to sleep as a result of his actions. Fast forward to Manifest Destiny when the white people began to settle there. The Utes were rightfully afraid that their sacred land would be destroyed. And so the Utes hunted out every possible rattlesnake in the valley, setting them loose on the sleeping giant to protect him from the outsiders. To this day, locals claim, and of course, ski instructors of Steamboat Springs claim, the sleeping giant cannot be hiked upon because of the sheer number of rattlesnakes. Page 23, here is another one. He's in Connecticut, and they've made him a state park. They literally designate the area Sleeping Giant State Park. I never heard of it until I did research on this this week, as if that's not suspicious. Nothing to see here, I'm sure. The Native Americans had an actual name for him. Hobomek was said to be an evil spirit. There's your evil giants. Who became angry at the neglect of the people he ruled over. In his rage, Hobomok stamped his foot near the current area of Middletown, Connecticut, causing the course of the Connecticut River to change. A good spirit named Kitan then put a spell on Hobomak, which, as you probably already guessed, caused him to fall asleep. The Hawaiians assigned their own giant to Now Now Mountain in Kauai. Story has it that the locals tricked the giant into eating a vast uh, amounts of rocks hidden in fish and poi. Sleepy from his meal, the giant took a nap and hasn't woken since. My Canada friends will not be so forgiving to learn they have their very own sleeping giant in Thunder Bay, um, Ontario, and I have neglected to tell them about it. There's probably more sleeping giants, but here's just one I found in Canada. And Ojibwa legend identifies the giant as Nana Bid. Jewel, Jow, if I pronounce that right, Nana Bijow, the spirit of the deep sea water, turned to stone when the secret location of a rich silver mine, now known as Silver uh, Islets, was disclosed to white men. So he betrayed the local people. He disclosed a, a mine to the, the white people streaming in post mud flood time frame and uh, apparently was turned to, uh, was put down at that time. Seems like it would have had to be much older than that. I don't know about the white man, but whatever. That's what I was reading. All right. Next, we see New Zealand has its own mountain named after a giant. And like the others, Te Mata Peep comes with a story of its own. The Herat Tonga Plains were under constant threat of war from the coastal tribes of Waimarama uh, and their giant leader, Te Mate. And so they hatched up a plan. The villagers, sounds like a, a plot line to King Kong, actually. Uh, the villagers lured the giant towards the beautiful Hainareku, a Pakipaki chief's daughter, causing him to fall in love with her, just like the plot to King Kong. The plan's only hiccup was the fact that the woman fell in love with the giant in return. Uh-oh. The rest of the story is a Romeo and Juliet tale, retrofitted for Titans. In any ways, there he is, dead or asleep or whatever. And there were, there were probably a lot more, I mean, that's shocking. <laughs> These all shockingly look like actual people. Uh, there's probably way more sleeping giant legends all over the world. Uh, I didn't have time to track them all down this week. And it's also interesting that C.S. Lewis gets into, I didn't comment on that in here, but C.S. Lewis gets into that in the silver chair. He has a sleeping giant called Father Time under, underneath Narnia that would awaken at the end of the world. So... 
it seems like the idea is that these titans will, you know, awake at the end of time. And then I'll let you guys on your own scroll through all these pictures of rock giants all over the world. Top of page 27. Who knew rock giants were legit after all? Sometimes they make up entire mountain ranges, but just as often their faces are cast into stone. Every featured picture on the last couple of pages is an actual landmark on our flat motionless plane, except for a single entry. Yes, one has been included in the bunch, which happens to originate from a BBC movie. It will be up to you to decide the real from the culprit. You will have to do your best as I won't tell you. Here's your final hint. They're the rock giants, which C.S. Lewis described in the Chronicles of Narnia, the Silver Chair. That story took place on a flat, motionless plane as well, like ours. Incredible. It never ceases to amaze me at what that man knew. Tolkien as well. Looking over these photos, and indeed I have been giving them the company inspection all afternoon, I am curious to know if you're seeing what I'm seeing. I will tell you about it. Much like the elephant mud fossils already shown several pages prior, it seems to me that nearly every rock giant featured passed from this world to Tartarus in a peaceable manner. Where is the struggle? Did they go quietly into the night after all? Not very giant-like, if you ask me, especially considering their reputation as the children of the Watchers. Sure, the gorilla looks overstuffed on bananas and certifiably hopping mad. As is to be expected... As is to be expected of an ape, but nearly everyone else is lying in bed. It seems to me then that the Tissa Act story goes well beyond face value. They were all living their lives until the moment they weren't. I bet you didn't see this uh, one coming right here on the bottom of page 27. Has it ever occurred to anyone that the place of a skull was a literal skull? Looks like a giant skull to me. Galgotha rises uh, 15 meters above the earth today. We're talking 50 feet. Do the math on that. If the head to body ratio is one to eight, we're looking at a 400 footer. Think that's big? Well, the biggest giant recorded in First Enoch was 300 cubits, which is roughly 450 feet. And I, I never even thought about that till this week. I'm like, oh my goodness. They, it's not a place, the place resembling a school. It's called the place of a school. That's, I never thought about that my whole, I don't know who did, but I, I didn't find this in any mud falls to research. I thought somebody would put that together. So there you go. Maybe it's the first time you ever thought about that. As I was saying, page 28, as I was saying, my observations had me thinking there was a sense of serenity with many a giant in their final breath. Whereas violence is scribbled all over this particular hillside feature. Seems as though he was turned to stone while in the fetal position. I'm reminded of Pompeii. I wish I could tell you the next one on this list was legit. It's not. We are told it involves aerial photography from Alaska. That much is true. Otherwise, it's a little too perfect. A digital creation and a fake. I would say the giveaway is her hair, but she probably knew her photo was about to be taken. It's almost like we're expected to believe she arrived home after another terrible date because giants can be so brutish, you know. It's really difficult to tell from this high up. Tell me that isn't a foot. It looks like a foot, a giant foot. They literally built houses upon one. I'm only counting four toes. The toes in the middle look like two, but I'm thinking erosion is the cause. The big toe is missing. You can see the place where it had once protruded into the ocean, but there is a cove there now. Perfect for picnics. How many villages do you suspect that foot squashed back in the day? Looks like the villagers had the last laugh. Oh, so more Photoshop. 
It's a fake. Don't think I'm trying to play games with your heart. I'm not. These are the same photos I have to sort through on the internet. There are quite literally nerds on the internet attempting to confuse the truth with fiction so as to make it trivial. All right, and page 29 here is what I told you guys before. I actually made the decision right before we went live to go in and cut it out of the PDF. It basically took it from a rated, uh, rated R to PG-13. I was thinking about the, la the ladies and the, the children out there. All right, so moving on down to page 30. And by the way, the bigger these get, the more I'm convinced that they're legit. A lot of the little stone pictures, you know, you kind of sound like eh, it could be, you know, just like lighting and, you know, just the shape of the rock and so on and so forth. Uh, but these big ones, like the one I'm about to show you, I I'm, I'm convinced this is legit. Like we are literally walking on uh, what used to be living organisms. What are we staring at here? It is another anomaly on Google Earth, for starters. I think I might have a slight idea as to what we're looking at, though. Blood runoff. There is no question in my mind that we're observing some sort of a violent flow out of the soil, but from the distant past. You can even see where it originates from, a punctured wound. It might even be a laceration to the gut. If that does happen to be the case, then what I'm suggesting is that we are once more confronted with the notion of an organic being from an ancient epoch, a gigantic one at that, becoming the very earth that we walk upon. Zoom out and we can observe the remains of an entire body, a head as well as a face. All you will need to do is find the gut wound again. It's perfectly positioned where you would expect the digestive system to be on one's body. From there, it should be easy tracing the creature's body in either direction. Follow the ridge line to the right, and it cuts abruptly south. I'm guessing that's a kneecap, as well as the tibia and fibula portion of the lower leg. Where are we exactly? In the Cappadocia region of Turkey, near Derek Giyu. There are all sorts of an anomalies in the area, but it, it will require taking up the comb in your back pocket. The creature makes up much of the landscape, measuring something like 12,000 meters, according to my estimate. But that is just a guess, of course, obviously. Convert meters to feet, and we come up with 39,370 feet. That's something like 7.5 miles tall. I know, right? And so I, I'll tell you what I think we're looking at. The being was a spiritual creature. You might even say an angel. Your first probable thought is whether or not an angel could ever stand that tall. It was mine as well. The quick answer is yes, but only some of them. During Moshe's trip through the seven heavens, he encountered any number of angels, which might be deemed impossible in height. So consider this one here. In the second heaven, Moshe saw the angel Nereal standing 300 parasangs high with his retinue of 50 myriads of angels, all fashioned out of water and fire and all keeping their faces turned towards the Shekinah while they sang a song of praise to Elohim. Metatron explained to Moses or Moshe that these were the angels set over the clouds, the winds, and the rains who return speedily as soon as they have executed the will of their creator to their, to their station in the second of the heavens, there to proclaim the praise of Elohim. That comes from the Legends of the Jews, Volume 2. The Parasang is a historical Iranian unit of walking distance. In modern terms, the distance is about three or three and one half miles, making the angel Nereal something in the ballpark of 900 or even 1,000 miles in height. The Cappadocia being then would have been a dwarf in comparison. 
You will tell me a bipedal human-like creature that size couldn't possibly live on the earth and survive, even an angel. It didn't. Recall how the dragon did not live upon the earth. No, it was a creature sent down from heaven. It arrived merely to destroy, but then died in the attempt. Until somebody can show me another scenario, I'm under the impression that something similar happened to the Cappadocia creature. He was judged for his transgressions. That's precisely what we read in Psalm 82. So I'll read this again for you guys. Elohim stands in the assembly of the mighty. He judges among the Elohim. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, ye are Elohim. And all of your and all of you are children of El Elyon, but ye shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O Elohim, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. Psalm eighty-two. Psalm eighty-two is a favorite of mine. I quote from it often. There are various explanations of this passage, but I think the correct under understanding is the most obvious one. Yahuwah Elohim is calling upon his divine counsel in heaven. The Elohim before him all play their part in the uh, manicure of the earth. But they are doing so in such a way as to play partisan with the wicked, a naughty no-no for uh, Yahuwah. Humanity walks in darkness, but they seem unwilling to enlighten them with Yahuwah's instructions in righteous living, the Torah. And so they will die like men. How exactly does one expire like a mortal? A flesh wound to the gut will do. If the geological abnormality we're looking at is what I think we're seeing, then he didn't die there and become a natural feature of the landscape for us. No, he is a warning for the spiritual beings inhabiting the ethereal realm. And that is all I have this week. I wrote as much as I could, and then Sabbath came upon me, and that was pretty much it. And I'm like, well, I guess I'm done writing that for the week, and that's my presentation, which is perfect because it was one hour. So before we move on to the Genesis Targum tonight, let me know your thoughts if you have... Uh, <laughs> John, I love that he... Uh, this is from the BBC movie we just watched watched recently which is i i like the bbc uh versions of the chronicles now they're very loyal to the text um i wish that all the others would be as well but anyways let me know your thoughts guys i'll give you a few minutes to think anything over Um, I thought it was a great presentation, and uh, I was just at Shiprock this week in Arizona, and a lot of people think it's a, a castle, which it appears that way, but the wall going up to it, it goes up and down, up and down, and it has these, it looks like scales, it looks like a huge dragon. It's Anyway, I just checked it out this week. I love the presentation. Thank you very much. I am so jealous that you got to go see Ship uh, Rock, and I've written on that. I so I mean, obviously, from the photos, it looks like a castle, and um, that's the first I've heard that it could be a dragon, because I've looked at the walls as well. But it, it's very different when you're obviously on the ground looking at something. So that's really fascinating. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. 
I had a hard time um, in some of the photos kind of seeing what you were seeing. I don't know whether it was just me. I'm not very good at like kind of deciphering these types of photos. I mean, some of them were quite obvious, but um, yeah, I, I had some troubles with some of them. Which one specifically, the elephant ones or the uh, the dragon one or the uh, the the big giant angel one at the end? I think like the ones that were on um, like the the Google Earth ones, I was trying to decipher what you were kind of referring to there. I was trying to expand really close and look and navigate what, where you were trying to go. Uh, I like in some of the the hills too of the, the sleeping giants, I I couldn't really see. But I mean, maybe it's just me that I'm not just deciphering them very well. And I know sometimes if someone like points it out to you, you're like, oh yeah, I totally see it. But um, I couldn't in some of these photos. Sorry. No, that's okay. The, the, the Google Earth ones, particularly, when I was writing this, because I'm, I, you know, I took those screenshots in Google Earth, and I'm kind of playing around with it and looking at them in a 3D image from different angles. And it, when I was looking at it from Google Earth, it made it look really clear to me. And something about when I took screenshots and put them on the page, I was looking at them going, yeah, it's harder for me to, to make it out now. Um, so that's why I encourage everyone in there. Just go to Google Earth. You look at Montgo, Spain. Uh, just type that in. Boom, you can go right there. You can't miss it. Uh, you can go all the way around it. Look at it. Look up close. See all the features. Um, the same with the um, the the Dragon of North Africa. It's one. The Dragon of North Africa is one of those things where um, people have a really hard time seeing it for some reason, but once you see it, you can't unsee it. It's like every time you look at North Africa, you're going to see the big dragon there now. Okay, I'll go to Google Earth and check it out. Yeah, I, I encourage that for I encourage that for everyone listening. Yeah, the name of the channel that did the Mont Go elephant, his name is uh, Stellium7 on YouTube. And uh, there's another guy named Hangman 1128, which does the same thing, but instead of like Titan creatures, it's Titan plants. And the giant trees of the Bible, you know, it talks about the huge tree, which um, is a kingdom that goes over all the other kingdoms and then it gets cut down. Um, well, he does really interesting research looking at certain, um, certain mountainous regions showing that there's a high likelihood it could be a giant tree. And like, I thought it was crazy at first, but when he shows what actual wood looks like when it breaks down, it's identical. There's no difference between it. And it's really crazy. Which location was that again? Uh, I forget right off the top of my head. I know it's in the mountains in the Northwest, but I'm not exactly sure. You're not talking about uh, Devil's, um, uh, Devil's Tower, are you? No, it's not that one, but that's another one that he brings up and talks about. He lives next to one that he suspects is a giant cedar tree, um, a very old giant cedar tree, because he found these areas where half of the mountainside had like fallen away, and it looks totally different than everything else. The, it doesn't have that gray patina on the outside. It doesn't have the moss on the outside. When it breaks away, it looks like wood on the inside. It looks just like it, and when you hit it with something, it even sounds like wood. Well, I was trying to post the uh, Naga cave, Naga cave, the the rock formation of a giant snake, and Michael beat me to it. 
but I dropped I dropped a picture there. Michael dropped dropped a picture in there too, and this is really a good example. I mean, there's no way that's not a petrified, actual, real giant snake that you know got absolutely heat blasted while it was coiled up. I mean, it it you can't mistake that for anything else. You can see the scales on the body and everything. That just gives me chills just looking at that, guys. Just this week. I have never seen it before in my life. We had, uh, Sarah came in and got me and she's like, you, you want to see a snake eating a squirrel? I'm like, uh, ew, no, but um, something tells me there's a snake eating a squirrel right now. So I go outside and yeah, the, there was a snake right below our steps, a, the biggest snake I've ever seen in the wild. And it had its, um, it already, it had its body wrapped around the, the squirrel, but it already had its whole head I mean, the squirrel's head in its mouth. And so we sat there for about 10 minutes and watched as it basically sucked the squirrel down. And it was just like, like snakes are, I find them to be creepy, disgusting creatures. Um, and, but it was like, I was sickened, but I couldn't turn away from it. Cause I, this is so fascinating, but sickening at the same time. But like, I have nightmares of snakes. So seeing something that big is just like, I'm glad it's dead. <laughs> <laughs> if I if I knew there was a snake that big on this earth right now, I don't know if I'd be sleeping well good tonight. Well, you know, down in the Amazon, at least back around the turn of the century, they were finding massive, massive snakes because snakes don't stop growing. As long as they're, you know, alive, they keep growing their entire life pretty much. And um there were some really massive ones that, that are down in the Amazon. Just don't go to the Amazon. Well, they're apparently in Florida now, too. They're also in the White House. And... <laughs> <laughs>